Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, I hope everyone is out there quarantining successfully. My gosh, the world is upside down, people. This makes no sense. But it is what it is, and so we wanted to put out some podcasts, hopefully help pass the time a little more enjoyably. And this week we are talking to Peter Prescott. Now, Peter Prescott's done a lot of things, but he is primarily known as the drummer in what is probably the most important post-punk American band of all time, Mission of Burma. Now, I don't know how many people know about Mission of Burma. I've mentioned this book on here before, Our Band Could Be Your Life. It came up in the Mike Watt in- interview from last year. It covers the preeminent indie American bands of the 80s that really laid the groundwork for the music that we enjoy today, the alternative rock movement in America. It features the replacements, Black Flag, Minutemen, uh, Burma, obviously, tons of other things. It is a must-read for any music lover. Well, I believe that that book sort of cemented Burma's place in the canon as being a really important band. Now, so we get into this. They only they didn't last very long. They only ever put out one album and an EP, and an EP, and then they were done. And Peter's done a lot of other things. He spent the entire '80s in a band called Volca- Volcano Sons. He was in a band called Customized. He's done a lot of things, but he will forever probably be tied back to Burma. Now, they actually came back together in the early 2000s for a victory lap, and it was fantastic. Put out a comeback album in the early 2000s, went on and put out three or four more, big tours. They got what they deserved eventually, but it all kind of came to an end. These days, Peter is in a band. He's actually playing guitar now and fronting a band called Mini Beast. And I probably shouldn't say this, but I actually like Mini Beast better than Mission of Burma. They are fantastic in this really kind of droney, dark, groovy uh, sect. I love it. Oh, it's good. So anyway, we talk about all this. And you guys know, this is kind of a hot topic for me. Why do certain bands get labeled cool? Why do all the music critics sort of agree that this band matters? This band is cool and they will forever be cool. And Peter and Burma reach that status and I want to know why. So we talk about that. We talk about how he makes a living. We talk about other music. He's a big record head. So we get into all of that. Anyway, it's kind of a fun conversation. If you don't know about Burma, hopefully you learn some things. I'm kicking it off since they didn't really have a hit with this song right here, which is my favorite Burma song. This is All World Cowboy Romance. Some of their better known hits are like, that's when I reached for my revolver, which Moby covered. There's a funny story about that. Academy Fight Song is another. That's how I escaped my certain fate. These are some of the classics from the early Burma period, but their latter-day stuff is just as good, okay? So anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation. I hope you learn a lot more about Burma and get turned on to some things. By the way, real quick, there's a great documentary about them on Amazon Prime called Not a Photograph. Check that out if you want to. Peter called me from his home in Providence, Rhode Island. So Peter, here's the deal. Um, first, first and foremost, I had a friend in college named Paul Prescott. And I can't promise that Paul might slip out every now and then out of habit. I'm going to do my best not to do that. But I apologize up front. So um, I've had a fascination with Mission of Burma for years and you you specifically. And so I thought, let's see if one of the guys would talk to me. And so I'm really glad we're doing this. Well, for starters, I feel like I should ask, I, what is the state of Mission and Mission of Burma today? Because I feel like I haven't heard from you guys in a while. You know, we kind of crept in, uh, uh, like in, what, what was it, 2001, crept back in then. 
and we crept back out the same way. <laughs> I wondered. <laughs> I mean, it was it was like a a ghost removal, you know. <laughs> I, I, th I think we had a great time. It went on literally, literally like 13 years more than we expected it to. <laughs> and, and by the time, I think maybe four years ago, we played uh, a couple of shows in, in the UK. And when we got back, uh, we didn't really even have to talk about it much. We, we, we were like, okay, this is, this is a good time to... To put the corpse back to sleep. <laughs> really? See, yeah. I'm just baffled by that way of thinking. I got to be honest, because in my mind, and I, my feeling is always that being a rock star, an employed rock star, has to be the best job in the world. So why wouldn't you always be working toward that? And if you guys, and I'm saying, oh, I'm playing devil's advocate. I can imagine, yeah, yeah. but I'm, I'm thinking, you know, you, you came back with such fanfare and you're releasing great music that people still like. And it's, I'm imagining you're getting nice big checks for playing shows that you wouldn't have gotten before. Why not keep that gravy train growing just at least for a little bit longer, but it sounds like you guys just don't want to. Well, th think, think of how, I mean, I understand that uh, view, but think of how long it went on. Most, most yeah. reunions are like for a tour. Yeah. True. We did. I I don't know how many U.S. tours. Maybe six, seven in uh, that union time. Did like maybe four or five in the U.K. And and to, truth to be told, the 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 checks were kind of big and silly when we began, and they were uh -huh. like when we stopped. Uh -huh. But that wasn't why we stopped. I I think you know everything has a shelf life. Everything mm -hmm. has a lifespan, and I think. Most bands don't know when that stops. Yeah, and and I give us credit for knowing when we <laughs> when yeah. we shouldn't beat the dead horse any longer. Um, <laughs> and and I, frankly, in, with me personally, the last few years of playing was really boring to me. Ooh, really? Um, and and it's it has nothing to do with Clint or Roger or Bob Weston. Uh, I I think the format was was sort of tired to me huh um and i was i was starting to do the stuff i do now the mini beast stuff and i was really getting excited by that yeah whereas playing the drums which is pretty much entirely i mean i mean i was a songwriter too but but my role in mission of burma was to play the drums right and, and i think you know rhythm's always central to to everything I'm, I like and am involved with. Uh -huh. But just playing the drums, I think, was getting a little tired to me, and I didn't like the kind of songs I was writing. And mm. so, so when it came up to devote more time to this before I finally shuffle off the mortal <laughs> coil, I was like, yeah, I think it, I, I want to do that. I, I want to do something that I'm sort of that is deeply mine yeah. uh, as opposed to, you know, sit in the drum seat for another. Got it. Okay. Um, that's really interesting. And you sent me those mini beast albums and I have to admit, I loved, I like those. I shouldn't say this better than any mission of Burma album. And so I'm going to ask you about those. I want to get into that in a little bit later, but yep. let's go back to the history. Cause I'm really excited to talk to you about mini beast. Okay. So I should tell you when I became aware of you, I think, 
I wonder if I have a similar story to a lot of people, which is that it was the book. It was Our Band Could Be Your Life that um, I got in the early 2000s that uh, I think I had always heard the name Mission of Burma. But, you know, I grew up in Salt Lake City. And as much as Salt Lake City loves 80s alternative rock, Mission of Burma just did not get played on the radio when I was growing up. So it was this thing that I had heard of, but it wasn't it wasn't you know real or or tactile to me until reading that book. And then that book, which I have to admit, I um, I talked to Mike Watt last year, and before getting t- ready to talk to him, I wanted to go read his chapter of that book, and I can't find my copy anywhere. So I I apologize now if I ask you something and you're like, well, you read the book, you should know that. Know that I know I did, but that was 17 years ago, and I can't find my copy of it anymore. Not a problem. Anyway, the point of me saying all that is that that was when I became kind of awakened to the impact of this band that I had only vaguely heard of before. And so I'm working at Tower Records at the time in their corporate offices. And right then is when you guys start on the comeback trail. And so I pick up verses, I pick up signals. Your label gives me a copy of On, Off, On. And then I go see you guys at the Fillmore. And it blew my mind. Yes. And I thought, now I get it. Now I understand why this band is important. Because if they put on shows like this 20 years ago, then no wonder they get this kind of attention. That's a long way of saying, was that book the thing that sort of, I don't know, propelled you guys back into the mainstream? Do you hear that a lot? Do a lot of people have the story that I have? Yes. Well, that's the short answer is yeah. It, it was it was a big reason, uh, you know, it put some focus on us. And right around 2000, 2001, there was sort of a post-punk revival that went on with the Strokes and, and bands like that that sort of had the scratchy guitars and the sort of almost like, you know, rock dance rhythms and stuff like that. I think during the 90s, like the sound of post-punk was really out. Yeah, people yeah. people weren't going there. There was lots of stuff that was outside of grunge then, but, you know, that was a prevalent sound, and it was sort of, like, heavy and fat and loud. And I think, uh, you know, a number of things came together. Um, there was a guy that we worked with back in the day who said, you know, if you guys ever want to do anything, I would love to help you, you know, put together shows. So uh, it just a lot of things happened to make it easy to do. Mm-hmm. And I think we were going to do one tour because we had never toured in the UK back in the day. So mm-hmm. we played some shows in Boston and New York and we we're going to do that tour and that was going to be it. And then, you know, our friends at Matador said, you want to put out a record? We'll, we, we'll do that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it kind of spiraled along until we find our found ourselves 13 years later and <laughs> you know, playing like what five times as long as we did yeah. in the last place. So, <laughs> so yeah, the book kind of put a, a quotes around us in a way. You know, like mm-hmm. everyone, everyone uh, that read that book, each band was sort of like pushed up into their uh, eyesight. You know, we were one of them. I, 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 I would admit, yeah, that had m- more than something to do with it. Okay. Okay. I was thinking too how, you know, if that hadn't happened, 
let's say you are not covered in that book. They pick some other band yep. to feature in there. What ha- what becomes of Mission of Burma? Does the reunion still happen? Does it happen with as much fanfare? Do you go on to put out five more albums or whatever it was? Yeah, or you know, does it kind of whimper away? That's a toughie. I, 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 I might say that. Really? It's, it's possible that it wouldn't have. I, I, I don't know. I, you know, again, it wasn't the only thing, but it was a, a strong thing. Yeah, I was, you know, I was reading an article um, written about you guys uh, by a writer in, on Salon.com, and it's by a guy named Greg Milner. And there was a quote in there that reminds me of you guys so much. It says, "There's this is proof that in art, the ability to make a lifetime last forever is often an artist's greatest achievement. And because I thought that's kind, that's so telling. And in fact, in your case, it's not even a, li- a lifetime you're lasting forever. It's almost a moment. It's right. one album and an EP that has managed to become part of the canon. I mean, I talked to Nick Hayward from, uh, you know, Haircut 100. I talked yeah. to him a couple of years ago. Yeah. And no matter what he does, he's one of the finest songwriters that's ever lived. But he will never live down the fact that for about a year period, he was in Haircut 100 almost 40 years ago. And that's it. And I think, I wonder if you guys feel that way, or maybe you felt that way, that no matter what you do, you'll never overcome that album and EP that came out 40 years ago. And if that's the case, are you okay with that? I I am. I mean, I, I okay. you, you have to be. You, 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 can't, you can't affect those things. People either relate to things like that or they, or they don't. And, I, I, you know, you, you have to be flattered that people will bother with these things that were kind of, you know, momentary blips in our existence. Um, right. But, I, and I, I won't lie about it, we're, we're super proud of those records and the ones we made later. So it, it's, not, it's not like, uh, you know, we never feel shame about them. We never right. feel bad about them. I, I, I know what you're saying. Like, it, things like that can be an albatross around your neck. And I, I kind of felt when the band broke up in the first place and I went on to the Volcano Suns, I, I, I dragged some of that sound with me. Mm-hmm. secondary to, mm-hmm. to Burma. And yeah. I, I mean, I, they weren't to me. I Obviously, the people I played with in any band were, I thought they were awesome at that yeah. at that time. You can't affect it. You, 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 
you just have to feel flattered that someone gave a shit. You know? <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. sort of what it comes down to. Yeah. So, you know, wh whether it's an albatross or not, or not, it's not, it's not, you know? Okay. Okay. Because, uh, you know, you mentioned Volcano Suns that went on for almost a decade. You know, you yep. put out far more material in that band than you did in your first band. Yep. And um, so I was curious when you, you know, when you wake up in the morning, do you think of yourself as I'm Peter Prescott, the former drummer of Mission of Burma, who has done a few other things? Do you think I'm a professional musician and I've done a wide swath of things and it was this band and this band? Do you think you're in Mini Beast? What does how does Peter Prescott define himself? I, I think any any musician that is doing something at the time that they really care about is in that thing. Uh, so I, I, I mean, yeah, I, I sort of forgot about everything else when I got involved with mini beast. Okay. I, I, I feel that's, that's sort of all I do right now. And when I was deep in, in the middle of the uh, reunion with Burma, I was the drummer in Burma. Yeah. So I, I, I guess I never think about what I'm not doing. Okay, that makes sense. I um, I keep name checking these people just because they remind me of your situation. I talked to Brad Elvis. You may remember him. He's a drummer too, obviously, and he's been playing with the Romantics for sixteen years. That's his wow. main job. Wow! But he uh, he and his wife they live in Chicago and they have a band called the Handcuffs and they put out albums and they're a great power pop band and they play around yeah. Chicago. And he thinks of himself first and foremost as being a member of the Handcuffs. The romantics yep. is just his job. Right. You know what I mean? And I, I wonder how Peter thinks of himself. Is it similar? It's like, well, I'm a musician and I happen to be employed by Burma for a while. And now my focus is mini beast. Sounds like maybe that's what it is. It is. It is. But I would say I've never, I've never been in a band where I have ever felt remotely. I, 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 it was a job. Mm. I like, I am 100% selfish. Uh -huh. Like when when I'm in a band, it's for my pleasure, and I, I guess that's why I've never been upset or bitter or anything that I didn't make millions of dollars from any of it. Mm -hmm. I, it it really doesn't matter because I, I I didn't look at it as a job. So uh, yeah. how can I be upset that I didn't make money from something that's not a job? Yeah, you know what I, you know. There's yeah. a certain logic going on there, and if I'm if I'm spending time doing something uh, musically, then I'm I love doing that at the moment, mm -hmm. and and hopefully when the time comes that I'm not thrilled by it, I don't do it. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you mentioning a job, I uh, to get ready to talk to you, I watched the documentary. Um, not a photograph. If yep. anyone's interested, there's a Mission of Burma documentary out there. It was showing you at the Smash City Record Store. Now, granted, that documentary was made a long time ago, and record stores are extinct. Do you still work there? Is that still a thing? No, I haven't worked in a record store for at least like 10 or 12 years. Oh. But it's funny how you, you, know, you drag things along. I mean, the, the one thing I do for, for extra cash is sell buy and sell records on eBay. I, I wondered. <laughs> and at record shows occasionally. So, yeah, it's, it's funny. Like, you can take me out of the record store, but you can't take the record store out of me. <laughs> that's great. Oh, yeah. oh that's great. Um, okay. Well, you know, you being such a music head, which I'm sure you are, I am, 
I'm always curious with someone like you. Let's be honest. You you and your music and your type of music and the bands you've been in represent a certain sort of coolness, you know? It's uh the rock intelligentsia has your back. You may not get played on top 40 radio, but the Robert Criscows and the smart people of this world are telling other people Burma is important. Prescott is I, important. I, 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 yeah, I guess we sit in that slot. I, you do. You absolutely do. You know? So I'm curious, though, what is the most uncool music that you love? When I started working at record stores, which was probably 92, 93, I actually had... I don't want to say a naive and retarded view of music, but <laughs> but I, I had kind of a narrow scope in, in there. I mean, I, I grew up on, you know, like sort of suburban 70s rock, Alice Cooper, Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin. So like, you know, I always loved that stuff. Then I got my mind split open from punk rock. And so those two things were sort of my meat and potatoes. And when I started working at the record store, suddenly my mindset changed entirely. I guess I used to have this sort of bank of stuff that I chose from to listen, and that was it. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly my brain went crate digger. And, <laughs> and I just, I wanted to hear stuff that I didn't already know yeah. As opposed to just listening to stuff that I did already know. Yep. Thanks. So, and and in the 90s, I think like, uh, because a lot of music was coming out on CD that had never been released. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of uh, reissue records were coming out. So suddenly, like I was listening to tons of soundtracks. Mm -hmm. um, I started listening to sort of like, hip-hop remix things mm -hmm. uh, electronic st techno stuff and uh especially when the lounge revival came in and exotica stuff i started digging on that so like there was a lot of really square 50s <laughs> music that i started checking out that was so square that it was bizarre <laughs> and, and i think that that changed my mind that the only things that could have musical value and inspiration came from rock. Yeah. Suddenly, I, suddenly it hit me. No, that's just not so. This this stuff everywhere. I mean, international music, African stuff. Yeah. Like I said, hip hop remixes. It could come from anywhere. When my mind opened up to that, oddly enough, I was in my thirties then. But I swear that was when my musical education, in a way, really, really started. Mm -hmm. So I guess the answer is the squarest shit would probably be, you know, lounge and exotica stuff. Oh, that's great. Do you have a recommendation for us? If anyone is listening, they're like, wow, I like lounge too. I had no idea Peter Prescott did. What? I, give us a recommendation. Well, there's all this, there's obvious people like in that, like there are in rock and punk. But uh, I would say like, if you see an old record with a bizarre cover, listen uh -huh. to it. <laughs> that you know just check it out it may suck but if it's cheap or if you find it online for cheap to stream it check it out just yeah. see what it sounds like because some of those records some of those like especially there are ones that are horror themed or outer space mm -hmm. themed those things are just like sonically as bizarre as the swans yeah. or the Minutemen, or uh -huh. you know name your you know 
Diamanda uh, Gallas, you know, so, some of the records that, that come from that period, I would just say ch check things out if they pique your curiosity. Okay. Okay. I love that. I love that. Now, conversely, going back to kind of what I was saying earlier, what is it that makes Mission of Burma cool? Is it, you know, is it the punk aesthetic? Is it the, um, I don't know. What do you think it is? Why do bands like yours and the Minutemen and all the others that were featured in that book and elsewhere, why is it that you guys get to be labeled cool and Rick Astley never will? That's a toughie. The only thing I would say is my memory, there was a there was a period of time when I was in that band in the early 80s where weekly a new record would come out, like the first Gang of Four, the first Joy Division, Delta Five. A lot of it was, was British stuff, but uh, there were great, like, uh, amazing guitar bands too, like Black Flag and Gun Club and and stuff like that. And, and the pace of... And of the creativity at the time was so stepped up, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I, I think that it wasn't just Burma, but there was a lot of bands that felt free to try anything that we mm -hmm. wanted to try. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was the era. It was the period of time. And it, and it wasn't, you know, at least I can speak for us and say we didn't do it because we thought like, oh, this will make us money. Yeah. Um, because yeah. It, it didn't make us money at that right. point. Well. <laughs> um, but but we. It's it's kind of like you got to take advantage when there's a moment in time where where you can try stuff. At the, let's put it this way: at the time, we weren't all that cool. <laughs> you know, may, may, maybe time makes things cool, but maybe. like at the time, I think there were people that liked the this sort of discordant kind of chaotic sound we were making. And you know, I remember reviews that uh, said like. You know, these guys were playing hard, but it sounded like, you know, a cement mixer being turned on and off to me. So, they, you know, there were plenty of people that, like, maybe recognized we were trying something different, but it didn't do much for them. And I, I, I guess I guess maybe when it, when you come down to a cool is just in the eye of the beholder at any given moment, you know? True, true. Yeah, it's true. I just wonder, I, I've had a few um, like rock writers and critics on here, and I'm always curious, like why why does the group think, why do all the writers think the same things are cool and uncool? And uh, that's just a question I'm, I'm always curious about. Like everyone agrees, exile on a main street. No one thinks undercover has any value, you know, or whatever it is. And so I'm always like, why? Why does everyone think that way? I don't understand it. And so you guys, Mission of Bourbon, are a great band, but you were lucky enough also to be sort of, like I said, hoisted up by the, the smart people, the tastemakers oh, exactly. in this world. And, and especially when, when the reunion happened, the fact that it sustained for a while yeah. was, was based on a lot of goodwill. I, who knows? Maybe they were directed to it by Ezra's book or, or by an article or something. But the fact that they stayed with us for a couple of years in the 2000s when we were uh, get, getting a little gray around the temples, <laughs> um, that, that was a really nice thing. And, and like you say, I, I, I can't answer you know, uh, okay. but what made them do that. I'm just glad they did. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, I want to dig into some specific songs and albums and things like that. Yep. Why are you always yelling in the background? I I love it. It's a I think my favorite Burma song is um, all world all world cowboy romance. 
Yeah. Just because it's very tuneful. It's kind of, it's yeah. a nice instrumental that could go on forever because it sounds, you know, there's a nice melody in there and everything. Yeah. But in most songs, that, Mika, whatever it is, you're often screaming in the background. You know, it's very faint. If you're listening closely, you can hear someone just going nuts back there, and it's always you. Where did that come from? Is that an is that an instinctual response to whatever you're doing, or did someone say, "Peter, you should"? I like that. You should keep doing that. I think I I probably are always chafed a little bit at being planted in the drum seat. Um, mm. It's not like I wanted to be a front person, but I I guess I I, I just playing drums by itself wasn't enough for me. So I I think I just tapped into, um, oh, let's put it this way. Burma had a slightly Anglophile tint when we began. I think we, mm-hmm. we liked British bands a lot. Yeah. And then, like I said, there was that period where American bands started really sort of stepping up their game. Like I said, Gun Club and Black Flag and Minor Threat. Hardcore stuff, and I think that when when those sort of guitar-oriented bands that had a lot of fury, when they popped up, I would say that they affected Burma, and we turned uh, slightly in the direction of that stuff, and slightly away from sort of Anglophile, The Cure, yeah. Susie and the Cheese, and I think when we did that, we our stuff got faster harder and then screaming started to make really perfect sense then Mm -hmm. so uh you know uh, clinton roger didn't tell me to shut up so i kept it going (laughs) (laughs) um now you've touched on this a couple of times let me let me take a slight tangent here you've touched on this a couple times that it feels to you uh, i get the sense from you that being stuck behind the drum kit is not where you want to be and in mini beast I, I didn't know that you weren't the drummer in that band when I started listening to it. And I'm listening to it thinking, what a great rhythm section. I love this kind of droney noise that could just go on and on for hours.
so do I. Find out, yeah, and then I'm realizing you're not even the drummer in that band. So, are you? Uh, are you? You know, you touched on this. Are you a? Are you a blossoming frontman that's sort of wishing to be doing something different? Do you see yourself as a guitarist first, and you happen to be a drummer in Burma? What's the story? I think I. You know, just in terms of nuts and bolts, I, I, I started out as a drummer and I love playing the drums in the bands that I played drums in. I'm not much of a guitarist or a singer mm. and I I don't really care. It's sort of a really comfortable way to express myself more than drumming, I guess, especially now. But But like you said, I don't feel like I've really stop because the band that I play in is like a big rhythm machine. Yeah. So so even though I'm not part of the rhythm section, I I, I think the whole thing is based around rhythm. Yeah. And yeah. and the uh the guys that I play with are both amazing players. Um mm. the the drummer especially is just astonishing. And I think he appreciates playing in a band with a drummer who's not who's not doing the drumming, I think he appreciates that that I I, I like pushing it in his direction. Um, okay. So uh, yeah, at this point in time, I I don't think much like a drummer, but but you know when I get right down to brass tacks, uh, it's it's the way I started, and most of the time that I played in Burma, I was really happy to be the drummer in it. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I wondered. One of my favorite Burma songs, and one of the songs is also a song where I think is one of your finest moments, and that's Twice off of the Obliterati. gate with these fantastic drums you hit them so hard no one hits them quite like you do what when you came back together and started making music again and put out these great albums and stuff was it a collection of material that you guys you know all three of you had sort of laying around or did you come together and find a chemistry immediately and that's what allowed you to put out these great albums after the fact what what was the chemistry there there was a couple of older songs on on off on mm. but even most of that record was written when we got back together so what we found is that when we played a few shows it was awesome that people liked it but we actually liked hanging out and we liked writing mm. so oddly enough 
we kind of just got right back in the driver's seat there and started writing new stuff. Yeah. Okay. I was curious. You, um, one of another song of yours specifically that I really liked off on off on off of on off on is the enthusiast. In fact, all three of you guys have really great songs on all of the albums. But when you um, when you're surrounded by two other guys that are, you know, also very good songwriters, do you divide things up equally? And and like, you know, Peter, you're going to do three or four. I'm going to do three or four. Clint's going to do three or four or whatever it might be. Is that how it works? Uh, oddly enough, pretty much exactly. Oh, OK. OK. I, it was it was a. Uh, yeah, I think there was some kind of socialist idea in Burma from the beginning that, like, you know, everybody gets the space they need to do what they want to do. I mean, that that happens often, but they don't usually but people don't usually include the drummer in that equation. Mm-hmm. And and the awesome thing about those guys is like they really helped me become a songwriter back in the day. Mm-hmm. So they encourage that to, to me i i look at clint roger as being the main songwriters in the band and the fact that they gave me my third was a, a really nice thoughtful thing i like to think that i held my uh held my own there but sure you know the the guitarist had been a writer roger had been a writer for a while uh, he went to school for composition, so he really has the deepest history with composing. Clint started writing in Burma and wrote these like sort of gnarly anthems mm-hmm. almost almost immediately out of the gate. So without any false modesty or anything, I think of those guys as the as the central songwriters in Burma. Okay, yeah. All three of you guys are fantastic. By the way, what are those two up to today? What are the, are they back in music? What are they doing? Clint still is a producer on a a show, a local show in Boston that's like a, an omnibus show. You know, where okay. you have different different stories on different things, and yeah. he's always loved that. And and he's like a really devo- devoted grandpa, I must say. Mm, that's great. Wow, Clint. Oh, it's just crazy to think of totally. anyone from Burma yeah, so, being a grandfather. That's wild. So he's he's ecstatic with what he's doing. Roger has a really cool. I guess you'd call it a psychedelic band. Uh, very very different from Mini Beast called uh, the Trinary System. Well, I was 
put out an EP and a, a full length a full length record last summer. Really great stuff. Like I, I mean, you could almost say the opposite of Mini B. Super composed. Some of the songs stretch out, and like I say, it's more psychedelic than than Burma. But that's great stuff. Then I know that he did a Kickstarter where he raised money to do kind of a like an avant-garde symphony huh. based on traffic patterns where he used to live. <laughs> and and he's he's I think he's going to have that at uh, the Museum of Modern Art this summer, maybe. Wow. So, so he's he's still super busy with music, and at this you know point in time, Clint is not. Okay. Okay. Speaking of now, we touch on the business side of all of this on here sensitively. Sure. I don't know how else to ask this, so I'm just going to say it. I mean, have you been able to pay your bills as a professional musician primarily for the last 40 years, or has it been sporadic, like maybe when Burma was going well or Volcano Suns were going well, or how does it? How has it played out for you? The answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder. <laughs> See, it's weird. Like I say, Roger has a different mindset about this. I think he's he has tried, in that sense, be a professional musician, trying to make a living off off music. I never did. I always looked at what money I made, and we actually made some decent money the first five years we were back together. Mm -hmm. So at that point, and... At other points since, it's been a nice little addition. But uh, for me, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't question this stuff with myself that much. But I, maybe I looked at living off music as something that I thought would corrupt the music I made. I don't. Uh, know. That's very but much that, the punk. It's very punk. Very much the punk mentality still. I suppose, but it's not even that. I it, it's more like a real professional musician has to make a lot of music or do a lot of things that maybe they don't want to do. Mm. I I like to minimize that because I I just don't want to ever think of playing music as a chore. Yeah. So I I guess that you know it, yeah the the punk. Um, mindset brought that on, but I think I just kept I, I kept approaching it that way because it felt comfortable for me. Okay, okay, huh? That's so interesting. I um I wonder if your life has been better or not what it could have been because of that way of thinking. You know, like what would have happened if you had gone for the gold? Would you have been a professional? musician paying your bills that way your whole life or would and and been unhappy or have you found like the exact right lane for yourself sounds like maybe you have you know uh, you know i think i have good okay i, think I have it and because i you know when you just said that i thought okay how about this scenario burma breaks up and i get a job in whatever playing drums uh-huh and, and that's that's a blank spot in my head because that mm. never would have happened. <laughs> it just wouldn't have. I, I because I, yeah. I get too bored with something that doesn't absolutely fascinate me. Oh, I got <laughs> it. Good. I love that. Good. Yes. Okay. Now, speaking of the business side, I have. I'm curious. I think. I, I think this was touched on in the documentary that I watched. How? What was the financial fallout of Moby covering? That's when I reached for my revolver. 
If I remember correctly, one of you guys got to buy like a, a septic tank. A septic tank. That's it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It. Well, just because Clint has a pair of songs that are kind of emblematic for Burma. Uh huh. They. Uh, that's when I reached for my revolver and Academy fight song were our uh, pop songs for want of a better right. term. some decent cash as the writer of those songs now depending on where they're used just from performance the rest of us got paid too mm -hmm. but yeah he <laughs> he got a septic tank out of that one <laughs> oh, i love it have yeah. you stayed in contact with moby were you guys friend i mean i imagine you were friendly back then because he loved you guys enough to cut co to cover you have you stayed in touch uh, not, not with me, possibly with Clint, because okay. I think one reason he had a warmth for that song and for Burma in general is he grew up in the same town in Connecticut that Clint did. Oh, got it. It's called Darien. Yeah. And I think even when he was uh, a youngster and into hardcore and stuff, I think he he was sort of a Burma fan even then. Okay. That's okay. my understanding, at least. Yeah, okay. Um, I want to, now you guys, the storyline on Burma coming apart in the early 80s is that Roger has tinnitus. I've heard it's pronounced tinnitus. I don't know if that's right or not. And, I'm, not um, I'm not sure either. Yeah, that's. I've heard both. So yeah. tinnitus, tinnitus, whatever it is, he's got this and it's bad and he can't do it anymore. And that is what ends the band. Is that... Is that true, or were you guys sort of like you? I mean, you've stated in here a couple of times that you get. It sounds like you get bored easily. You know, I, ah, this, I'm not I feeling this anymore. I was really happy playing in Burma at the time. I was probably the one that wanted to go on at that point. At that point, the most. Roger, I think, suddenly got very conscious of the idea that, like, if he played with us a few more years that it was going to eliminate him playing music for the rest of his life. Yeah. I okay. think, I think, I think it scared the shit out of him. Man. And yeah. he, he just said like, I want to be able to play music. I, I have to do that. So if this, if this is going to ruin that for, for later, then I've, I've got to take a break from it. Mm -hmm. um, Clint had some health issues at the time. I think he was going, it, 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 Clint, it, like, 
as great a musician and songwriter as he is, never looked at music as a as a lifetime job. I don't mm. think. Mm. And so when when Roger uh, brought that up, I think Clint thought I, I should go back to school. I, you know, he wanted to do stuff with TV production anyway. So it kind of was a good idea. I, okay. I you know, I we always laugh because we go. Oh, if we stayed together for another few years, we could have started putting out shitty records. (laughs) So instead of that, we waited 20 years and we didn't put out shitty records. So as it turned out, it it was probably a good thing. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. I um, it's funny. They uh, you may have seen this. There was this big announcement for uh, I think it's the next All Tomorrow's Parties concert in L.A. That's happening I think in May, and it's. You know, Morrissey, I think, is the headliner. Oh, and there's Yeah. Every, yeah. like, great 80s, especially British band, is playing in this thing. And I thought, that's, you know, it would be it would be so cool if Mission of Burma could at least come together once a year <laughs> to play a show like that. That's where you belong. You it know? sort of is, you know. But, th- but that's another problem. I don't think we ever... We just never wanted to look at ourselves like an, as an 80s, uh, like, yeah. revival. Band, you know, yeah, I know. I, I, I agree with you. I saw the ad for that, and I felt like our name would make sense in there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> let's be honest; it would be near the bottom, or at least in right. the middle. It'd be like in smaller print oh, than totally. the psychedelic first, probably. But yeah. it would be there, and people would be, "Ooh, Burma, yes, I'm coming yeah, to that." Know. You know? Well, that, well, that's the funny thing. I I think that the only reason we went on as long as we did in the 2000s was because we were not doing that. Yeah, we were trying to play with current bands and we were trying to be a current band by writing, you know, new material and stuff. So I I, I think let's put it this way. I think we would have been a really terrible 80s revival <laughs> band. So I'm, I'm kind of glad we never did that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That is so funny. Yeah, I could see that. I could yeah. see that when we we haven't talked too much about specifically some specific songs, but when you guys would close a show, uh, especially during the reunion years, what would be the final, what do you usually close songs with or close shows with? Did it change every night or was it like, we've got to play that, you know, that's how I escaped my certain fate right here or whatever it is. Um, You know, there are certain songs that would end up toward the beginning or the end, but basically we, we wrote a different set every night back in the day. And when we got back together, Okay. We, we always did that. I think that that was one thing that that kept us relatively fresh with material, whether it was new or old. We did we didn't play it the same way every time. We didn't put it the same place in the set. There were songs that sometimes would end up last. That was one certain fate.
but but we tried not to do it the same way every time. Okay, okay. Um, so tell me more about Mini Beast. So you guys, the albums you sent me, Silver and Gold. What's yep. the plan? I, I there's a there's a theme going on here, but explain it to us. It it started out. Uh, I got a an eight track hard drive TAC home recorder, and I just started putting together things. I, I didn't even think of them as songs, really. I mean, they were they were just little sound blobs, you know. Yeah. And, where I would uh, I would use uh, not actual drums, drum pads, and do a bass part, then put some sampled crap over it. And the more I did that, the more I liked it. My favorite stuff about Burma was the abstraction, where where you know, like I love the anthemic stuff too, and and the big you know, like sort of power chords, but. Those guys would write these great breakdowns that almost seemed like from, you know, other kinds of music rather than rock music. Yeah. Sometimes it like an Indian sort of a drone vibe to them. And that stuff, I realized, like, more than the big rock beats or lyrics and words, I, re I really don't care about <laughs> I'm the I, same. You know, same. I like yeah. texture and and same. the feeling of traveling you get from a long a long form Ooh, song or a jam or whatever. And I I think the more I made these things at home, the more I I sort of went went in that direction. I, I you know, the stuff isn't completely instrumental either. There's plenty of shouts and chants and but they tend to be minimalist. Everything is minimalist. I don't want guitar solos. I don't want, I actually, I don't want the songs to be driven by melody. I want melody in them, but I don't want that to be the primary trailer yeah. pitch, you know? primitive blueprint for what mini beast was and then um when i moved down here i met some great musicians and that was the first mini beast band and it was a four piece uh had had some moments we were together about a year and those guys were all in other groups so i it was it was hard to make it go anywhere so i, I decided to break that up and go back to uh, recording. So I recorded a second record called Free Will. And Free Will is the first Mini Beast record I feel like has the vibe. Mm -hmm. And um, again, it was just me doing it myself in the bedroom. 
And then I ran into some um, other players that like the idea of this sort of abstract, quasi-instrumental, you know, chanting long songs. Let's see, that lasted for a few months. The drummer moved on. Then I ran into the the drummer I play with now, who is incredible. One of, yeah. one of the best musicians I've ever played with. Kind of in a Bill Bruford. Uh, Ooh, really? Even like a Billy Cobham, you know? Wow. I mean, he, he loves punk, punk stuff and he loves prog stuff. But when I first talked to him in an email, I said, you know, somewhere between Fella Cootie and Public Image. And, and he went apeshit. He said, like, I, I've got to play. Please mm-hmm. let me come down. So he came down and immediately I knew, like, this, this guy could really expand what this is. Because mm-hmm. it, it, it sort of, it meant that the rhythm had an even larger role in the whole thing. So, so I think we recorded all the material on those records now about two years ago. We did a short tour, then we came back and we started work mixing all this stuff. Our bass player left and we got another bass player. And then then the rhythm section was immaculate to me. <laughs> then, then it just sort of like really became this huge pulsating blob. And the records we did through a Kickstarter campaign in April. So those those basically came out in maybe October, early November. Okay. Putting them out as two separate records came about, I think, mostly because we liked all the material. And if we were going to put it out, it was either going to be a double album or we were going to save some stuff. And for for us, like it was getting old anyway, so we said, "Fuck it, let's put it out as two separate <laughs> records." And hopefully, if if you listen to them as two separate records, maybe it's not too much information to take in. Mm. Because I, I I tend to think, as much as I love Double Nickel Nickels on the Dime by the Minutemen, it's you can't listen to it all at once. It's That's it's true. so much, it's so much information that you need to sort of take it in piecemeal and. Yeah. I'm not going to mince words here. There's probably some kind of a, a stoner aspect to listening to this music. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think that's accurate. So uh-huh. I, I figure like to really uh, enhance that, mm. that, that way of listening to it, I thought it was best to split them in half and uh-huh. have different cover art and, and vinyl that, that sort of colors each half. Okay. Got it. So that's um, the, that's the story. Got it. Well, anyone who's listening that's interested, if you are of the persuasion that Peter has just sort of laid out, I would highly recommend you checking out the Mini Beast albums. I have gold and silver, and I love them both very much. Um, where can I mean? Are, are these available on iTunes and everywhere else that you know people? They do? are. They're uh, Spotify, iTunes. The, you can get. Uh, T-shirts and records and downloads from Bandcamp, too. Okay. And is that your primary job? Is Mini Beast your job today? What is? What do you do every day? It is. Oh, along with the... Oh, like I said, I, I sell records on eBay. Yeah. yeah. I suppose that's my job that makes uh, makes me a little more money than this. Okay. But, okay. Um, as far as my uh, 
My musical job, yes. Okay, okay. That's what I wanted to know. All right. I, I always try to close these things out. I want to know if you, what is just your favorite memory? I mean, you had to have gained the respect of people who you admired that inspired you to become a musician. Like we lost Andy Gill recently from yeah. uh, Gang of Four. And they are an obvious you know, precursor to you guys. Yeah. I know you guys played together. You Did you know Andy? Yeah. Yeah. We played with him maybe four or five times back in the day. Yeah. Um, yeah. We were friendly with him and we actually became friendly with Wire in the, in the reunion period. We didn't know them back in the day. Okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's always nice to connect with people that you revere. Yeah. I would imagine, like I was saying, I would imagine, you know, you've gained respect of people you revere. You may even be friendly with a lot of these people. There's a very vibrant music community out there in Boston that you're, I'm sure, considered sort of a godfather of. What is your favorite memory? Hearing something on a radio, writing a song. Maybe it's one of these, maybe it's Volcano Suns, you know, maybe it's customized. I don't know. But when you look back and you just think, I've had a great life. And this is the th first thing that pops to mind that tells me that. Geez, you know, there's an awful, there's so many that it, it doesn't, I, I don't pick out one in particular. Oh, okay. I, I, to be completely negative, <laughs> <laughs> um, there was there was an event um, that was toward the end of the reunion. Now, this is after we had, we, we kind of promised, uh, promised ourselves that we, once we started, stopped writing new material, we would stop. And we didn't really do that. We went on for about two years, two and a half years, where we didn't really write new material. And that's where I was sort of getting bored and not not really involved in it as much as I was. And that's where I started working on Mini B stuff. But we we played a really odd show. And it was opening for the Foo Fighters and the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones at Fenway Park. And it was a strange event, and in my mind, it sort of put a period at the end of the reunion. You know, it was sort of an enjoyable thing, but for me, it left a, a weird taste in my mouth. It, it was like there was something completely non-Burma about the whole idea of that. And I, I remember... We were playing in the daytime, and I guarantee you, old people look like shit playing in the daytime. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the whole thing was fun for the for my brother and his family, Clint's relatives and Roger's relatives and stuff. It was sort of a fun event for, for the people around us. <laughs> it was one of those things that, that I always felt awkward and strange about. Um, I can't even explain why. And believe me, it's not because I don't think we deserved attention. I, I do. Yeah. But but let's put it this way. If it had, if that kind of a thing had happened, you know, when we first started playing, I I would have welcomed it. Sure. I felt I felt like it was an odd event to happen toward the end, you know, like mm -hmm. um I you know, on the flip side of that, I guess to answer your question, uh, there was an Ultimoros Parties that was put together by Matt Groening. Uh-huh. Oh. Yeah. And that was in Los Angeles. I think it might have been the only one 
they ever had in Los Angeles. And the contortions played at it, an early Iggy and the Stooges reunion, Mars Volta, it went on and on. And maybe that's the kind of event you're talking about. Mm, yeah. that, that I remember really fondly. And it was nice. Like it, it felt like all these people, at least at this moment, are, are peers. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, so I, that, when that yeah, was when, a fun one. The, the Fenway Park, a little less so. Yeah, I, when you were explaining, I was like, well, the food, I, I don't particularly like the Food Fighters, although I have a lot of respect for Dave Grohl. He seems like of a really course. nice, fun guy. Um, I, you know, the Boston's don't quite do it for me. But yeah. I'm, tr I'm, I'm imagining, you know, we've talked a lot about how cool Burma is. That isn't like the coolest bill that you could have been attached to, probably. Quite, quite the opposite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's the kind of funny thing. As, as a sort of a nuts and bolts rock band, and, and so many people are really, really good at that. They can like get out and sort of like make you, you know, happy that you paid your 25 bucks and you go home like humming the songs and stuff. Burma was never that. No. <laughs> No, <laughs> you know, I I think you know we we were uh, such a selfish bunch of geezers that I, I I think we were always trying to make ourselves happy first. See that? Yeah, I uh, could see it. <laughs> okay. Um. Well, look, uh, Peter, this was great. By the way, I got to say one thing. I've always been really bummed that when I went and saw you guys at the Fillmore. Most shows at the Fillmore, if you've ever been there, anyone who's listening, at the end of the show they hand out posters and. I have like 20 of my Fillmore posters framed in my basement. And the worst feeling is in the world is when you go to one of these shows and you're loving it and there's no poster at the end because the band wow. didn't commission one. And you guys didn't commission one. And it pisses me off that I don't have a Burma poster framed on my wall. So anyway, I said That's a bad one little thing. That's funny. Yeah. But that was such a great show. Anyway. Thank you, Peter, for talking with me. I, uh, I've had a fascination with you guys since I read that book, and uh, it means a lot that you would spend some time with me. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. There you have it, Peter Prescott. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I hope you learned some things. I want to close it out with one of their latter-day songs. This is Fever Moon off of that comeback album from 2004, On Off On. Any of the comeback albums are fantastic, are just as good, actually, as the early stuff. The Obliterati, whatever it is. And by all means, do yourself a favor and check out Mini Beast. Those albums are fantastic. I love that dark, droney, groovy rock, and that's what that is. So anyway, hope you heard some things in here that you like. And as I mentioned before, if you are a music lover and you have not read Our Band Could Be Your Life, you really should. I don't know if you'll, I'm not claiming that you're gonna love every one of those bands, but it's worth learning the history of American alternative rock. Why not, especially of the 80s. Now, next week, we are talking to a man who wrote uh, one of the most iconic songs ever. And I don't, I try not to throw that word around, as you guys know, because it gets used in places where it's not actually iconic. But he wrote, he did a lot of things, honestly. Worked with a lot of fantastic people, artists that we love, producers that we love, who've come up on this show many, many times. He's mostly known for writing a song that is one of the most iconic songs of all time. And uh, we'll just leave it at that. It introduced something that changed everything. So anyway, you're going to want to come back next week because that one is a lot of fun as well. 
Huge thank you to Peter. Thanks for doing this with me. And a huge thanks to Yan, the man, Makevich, for putting everything together. Uh, you guys know how to find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at The Hustle Pod. We have a few deep dives in the can now. And uh, Yan may be putting those out sometime very soon to kind of pass the time while you're quarantined. Anyway, good luck, everybody. Stay safe. We love you.